I feel like this is where I give you guys a um, reward word for being here today when all your classmates are not, so a word for the final. If you write this word on the final, you'll get three extra points as long as no one not here writes it. So you have to keep the secret, otherwise someone not here will write it. And um, then you won't get the three extra points. So I think the word will be, so um, write it down, but do not share it. Um, do, you have a, do you have a smartphone? Yeah. Can you take their picture okay. so we know who's here? So it's just some nonsense word. I don't know where it's from. Okay, don't say it. Don't say it. So write that on the final. Tell no one. You know this. You know this routine. Um, write this on the final. Tell no one. Um, and if you write it on the final, you'll get three extra points. Yes. Okay, but tell no one because if anyone here took... Here, Courtney, come on up. Take their picture. Don't say this aloud, but write it on the final. And you'll get three extra points. We, on the other hand, we in this country will lose our minds, but that's something different. <laughs> oh, I didn't. You could do a panorama. Oh, I should. Got it. All right. Thank you. Okay, everyone got it? You got the correct spelling and everything? Uh, oh, sorry. Okay, good. Uh, did people bring their words worth? <laughs> All right, Courtney, <laughs> could you get the intimations out up on the computer? Is that a doable thing? Sorry? Um, no, not camera ready. Just go on a website. Um, you can go on Poetry Foundation, and that way people can see it on screen. Okay, if you haven't picked up your paper, as three of you have not for me, do you have papers that people haven't picked up? Okay, if you haven't picked up your paper and you're here, pick up your paper. Um, it weighs down our backpacks to carry around these graded papers that we're carrying around. So if you have not picked up your paper, even if you sent it in by email, it's printed out. So even if you emailed us your paper, um, the paper is printed out, and um, you can pick it up. Um, so do so. Okay, um, just one more thing, or a couple more things to say about lyrical ballads and why lyrical ballads, and then we'll go to the intimation zone, which we will spend today and possibly some of Monday on. Um, so the idea in Lyrical Ballads, if you read um, Wordsworth's preface to Lyrical Ballads, that's a preface that he wrote for um, a later edition and then revised for still later editions. Lyrical Ballads went through a lot of editions, um, augmented each time um, every couple of years. There was the 1798 version, there's the 1800 version, there's the 1802 version. Um, in the preface that Wordsworth wrote later for Lyrical Ballads, um, among the things you will recollect that he says is that what he wanted to do was write poetry, as he puts it, in the natural language of natural men. Um, that is, that the idea of poetry that we really, 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 really saw in Pope um, was an extremely artificial language um, that expected you to know such things as Homer and as Paradise Lost and um, as all sorts of um, traditions that Pope could allude to, full of knowing jokes, full of cleverness, full of, um, of um, references, to things that a highly educated person of the time would get and that an uneducated person 
would not get. An uneducated person at the time would be illiterate. Um, universal literacy is way in the future. Um, but a highly educated person, simply by being literate, would also have gone to a school where they would have learned many, many, many of the things that Pope is alluding to, and therefore many, many, many of the things that Pope is doing. Um, so part of the um, joke, part of the put-down of um, Sir Plume, remember the one who is of snuffbox justly, justly proud, um, the one who just starts sputtering, give her the hair, he said, um, and wrapped his box. Um, Sir Plume is the representative, you could say, of the very opposite of Pope's gracefulness um, and his um, um, just dazzling ability to be um, alluding to everything, everywhere, all the time. Wordsworth, you'll remember, hated Pope. And one thing that he hated about him was what he thought of as Pope's absolute artificiality and the idea that poetry is an artificial art. Okay, so you have to log in with your own. Oh, that's not so good. Um, all right, sure. Um, lecture for a minute. Just Pope good. Wordsworth bad or vice versa? Wordsworth good. Here. Okay. <laughs> now you know. Okay. So you should be able to just now go to whatever, Chrome or whatever. Um, okay, Wordsworth, good, Pope, bad, that's the secret. Now, they're both good, but they're good for vastly different ways. Vastly different ways. Um, so, Wordsworth is writing, as he says in the preface of Lyrical Ballads, he wanted to see what poetry written in the natural language of natural men would be like. Um, that goes also with his famous idea that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. That poetry should not be, oh, I have a very clever idea that I'm going to write a mock epic um, in which um, a card game is compared to the war in heaven in Paradise Lost. It's rather that um, to be a human being, um, and this is what we were talking about in, that, in the idea of ballads, to be a human being is to be thrown into a world of woe and sorrow and difficulty, to be thrown into a world in which you have um, experiences and needs that are appropriate, you could say, appropriate subjects for lyric, where lyric, again, is an I, a person, um, who is speaking from the heart. We'll see. Um, you may just have to listen. Okay, so um, that idea that people have powerful feelings, that those powerful feelings will overflow spontaneously into language, that the language they use is the language that comes from them naturally, and that what poetry should be attempting to do in some way is to reproduce, to imitate, maybe to tighten up a little bit, but not in an artificial way um, what that language is. That's an idea of poetry that we still have right now. Um, it's the idea of poetry as from the heart. It's the idea of poetry as um, speaking, as the soul's speech, as the soul speaking. Not an artificial soul, but the soul as the deepest part of you. Um, and that idea, essentially, as what poetry should be, that is coming out of lyrical ballads, and it is the idea of poetry since that we have since lyrical ballads. 
um, not the only kind of poetry there can be by any means, but the center of, po of what poetry means to people for whom poetry means a lot. Um, the center of what poetry means to <coughs> readers of poetry, the center of what poetry means to writers of poetry. So that is basically all of that comes out of lyrical ballads. And again, therefore, the lyrical part is that it comes from the soul. The ballad part is that it's in the language of everyday life, the language that people use when they're using language, you could say seriously, not artificially. The serious use of language is when you have something urgent to say. When you are in love with someone, or angry at someone, or sad about something, or in desperate need, um, you don't start using language which sounds like Pope, and you don't start using language which sounds like a paper. You don't say, in my following discourse, I shall explain the need that I am now experiencing in order to make clear um, how need is a general um, aspect of human feeling. Um, the kind of paper writing intro is artificial. Um, so the idea then is lyric from the heart, ballad, the kind of language that people remember and that use someone and that they use someone was asking yesterday about the dialect aspect of um, some of the ballads we were looking at um, they're in dialect because that was the everyday language of um, the people who were remembering reciting repeating the ballads for them it wasn't dialect if you've read uh, Mark Twain you know that Mark Twain is famous for his ear for southern dialect in the United States, um, especially for Southern dialect. Um, if you watch Louis C.K. or whatever, you'll hear lots of um, good parody um, or good reproduction of Boston dialect. He's wicked good at that. Um, so dialect is local language, the language of the local people. When you read Jane Eyre, you will see that there's a little bit of dialect in Jane Eyre. Um, not too much. Has anyone read Wuthering Heights? So in Wuthering Heights, there's a lot of dialect um, that you actually need footnotes to read. Um, in King Lear, you will remember that Edgar, when he is disguised and helping Gloucester, and they meet Oswald, and Oswald says a proclaimed prize. Um, Oswald doesn't speak in dialect, but Edgar starts speaking in dialect to disguise himself to Oswald. And instead of saying um, I, he says ch as the first person pronoun, which is actually a Germanic, um, it, it shows the relationship of Germanic and English, which I was actually talking um, to Fritz about. Um, what's the German word that we say I, that is the first person pronoun? Ich. Ich, I-C-H in German. So when Edgar says well, then, chill fit you. Um, what he is saying is, well, then, I'll fight you. But the chill, which is I will, the CH in that is the CH in the German ich for I. Um, so dialect is partly a sign that you're not writing an artificial university school language um, and that you're not writing in the tradition, explicit tradition of English or Latin or Greek or classical poetry, but that you are writing, if in any tradition at all, in the living tradition of the ballad, in the tradition of ballads and nursery rhymes, if in any tradition at all, or songs, um, a tradition where people have this poetry in their head because they learned it as children and it was part of what they were learning when they were learning the language. So it's part of their sense of the language, um, part of what the language means to them. So Wordsworth and Coleridge in different ways, um, and ways that we won't, uh, the difference won't be so important to us right now, but Wordsworth and Coleridge wanted to write really serious poetry in natural language, and there was a political reason for this. 
um, not the only reason, perhaps not even the main reason, except to the extent that politics is everything, which in some ways it is. And the idea, if not political, at least the moral idea, is that highly learned poetry of the type that Pope is writing, um, Wordsworth gives Gray as an example as well, um, a late 18th century poet who's really, really good. But highly learned poetry um, suggests that poetry is an elite occupation. And the idea that poetry is an elite occupation, that by itself isn't such a terrible idea. It becomes a terrible idea. The elitism of poetry becomes a terrible idea when combined with the idea that poetry is what expresses what's deepest in the human soul. So if you think, as Milton, for example, does, um, as Shakespeare does, that poetry is what exp is, expresses what's deepest in the human soul, um, and, and this is not something that Pope thinks, um, but if you think poetry expresses what's deepest in the human soul, and you also think that poetry is the exclusive province of the elite, of the learned, of the educated, of those who are highly literate and immersed and imbued with poetry. If you think both of those things, you will then have an elitist view of the soul. What you will think is the working person, the lower classes, the 47% or the 98% or the 99% not being poets, not writing, not reading, not appreciating poems like Pope's, um, that such people are simply not as deep as those who do. So the elitist view of poetry is strangely and maybe unexpectedly also a view of poetry as deep so that you get an elitist view of depth. Only the elite are deep. That's the view of poetry that you risk if you're obsessed with poetry, but the kind of what you think of as poetry is something that only the learned can write, that only the learned can read. What that means is there's a very, very deep kind of human experience available only to the learned. And that is what Wordsworth and Coleridge are strongly arguing against. And that's why they are writing poetry in the natural language of natural men. Um, they, to, again, to quote Wordsworth, um, they were figures who in their youths were revolutionaries. Wordsworth um, observed the French Revolution. He was in France at the time of the French Revolution, his famous line about that when he was traveling in France was, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Now that doesn't mean that you can't also read and write and appreciate elitist poetry. Milton obviously did, but Milton didn't think that the only people who de deserved salvation were those who could read and understand Paradise Lost. Milton thought that Shakespeare was the greatest poet in English of all time, and what he, one of the things he loved about Shakespeare was how Shakespeare was popular, how Shakespeare was writing. We don't think of Shakespeare anymore, but you're always told this in English class. Remember, Shakespeare was a popular playwright. He really, really was. And um, that was part of what was great about him, is that everyone liked Shakespeare, that there were um, class distinctions in what parts of Shakespeare plays people liked, but everyone liked Shakespeare. People liked different parts of the plays, but everyone liked Shakespeare. So Milton was an extremely learned poet, but Milton did not think that learnedness was what you needed to be deep. Um, Lots of 18th century poets at least um, allowed such thinking to develop. Um, so Wordsworth in writing, and Coleridge in writing, in the natural language of natural men, um, wrote two different kinds of poems. 
um, poems of the supernatural, which were mainly Coleridge's um, Ballywick, and poems of natural life written in the form of poems of the supernatural. Um, and one example, not the, not the best possible example, although the best possible poem, is A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, which is not about anything supernatural. It's not about crows talking to each other about the death of human beings. It's not about robins answering um, proud Maisie. Um, it's completely natural. Um, but it is written in the intense and spooky and eerie and estranging form of the supernatural balance. And that form is one that suggests that the deepest part of human experiences are the experiences of that kind of estrangement from the world. And that every human being, by virtue of being human, has that experience. That poetry, um, may not be what everyone likes, but it's not because what it's about are elitist experiences. It's not about, you know, that feel when you're hella skiing and then you realize that, you're, um, that there's no LTE coverage. That's very much a first world experience. For... Um, Wordsworth and Coleridge, the whole point is that poetry is not a first world experience. It's an absolute human experience. Um, for Blake as well, hence the Songs of Innocence and, and of Experience. Um, so let's look now at Wordsworth not writing. Um, and this is uh, what I want to get up for you since uh, we didn't bring it. Um, Wordsworth's great um, poem, The Intimations of which um, is pretty much rightly considered the great poem of the greatest poem in English of the last 50 years. Maybe the greatest poem in English since Paradise Lost. I don't want to oversell it. Um, and part of what it would mean to oversell it would be for you to read this and say, yeah, it's, it's great enough, but if this is the best that um, English poetry can do, I'm going to go back to Pablo Neruda, which is fine. Um, but it's also the case that a whole lot of um, any approach to literature, so I'm going to make now a general theoretical comment, a whole lot of any approach to literature should always be to make the literary work that you are reading, or the artistic work, any aesthetic object, your approach should at least be in part your doing the work of making the thing that you are reading or seeing or contemplating or thinking about the best possible thing it can be. The word possible there matters. You could make the intimations owed perhaps into something better if you wrote yourself a code book where this was actually a poem written in code and what was being described here if you had the right code book was um, a prediction of the 2008 presidential election of Obama. You could write a code book in which you could say, okay, so the word the in the first um, position of this poem stands for 2008, and the word child stands for presidential, and the word is stands for election. You can always do that. Anything can be with the right code book, anything can be recoded as anything else. Um, but it couldn't possibly be that. So even if you think that would make it a better poem, it's not the best poem it could possibly be. That would be an impossible poem. I actually don't think it would make it a better poem, but even if it would, it's impossible. The idea is to make it the best possible poem it could be. I had a friend in graduate school who loved this game where um, whenever we saw a codger um, of some sort, the kind of person you look at and you think, what a codger, you know, what a cranky fool um, just walking down the street. Just some innocent old man is walking down the street. And, um, and youth being youth, youth like all of us, look at this old man and 
just shake our head. What a codger. Um, so my friend would always, uh, whenever he saw such a person, he would always say, make me like him. And then you were assigned the task immediately to come up with a description of that person that would suddenly make them moving and interesting, um, rather than the codger that they seemed so obviously to be. Doing that work, coming up with a way of making something as good as you can possibly make it, that's always really good work to do. That's why we assign papers. That's, in a sense, what you should always be doing in a paper. Make something as interesting and as deep and as powerful and as worth reading as you can possibly make it in your interpretation of it. So when I say this is the greatest poem ever, or the greatest poem in the last quarter of a millennium, um, that doesn't mean that you just have to look at it and say, okay, Mr. Great Poem, prove yourself to me. No, you have to prove yourself to it. And you have to do that with anything that you read, any aesthetic object. Prove yourself to it. Um, prove that you can see and find and feel the depths in it. So that's just a general comment. That's one theory of literary value. It's actually associated with the legal theorist Ronald Dworkin, um, who applies that theory to literature, um, having applied it to the US Constitution. That is, that unlike the late uh, Justice Scalia, and unlike some other constitutional interpretations, Dworkin, who was a professor of law at NYU, but also a literary theorist, um, took the idea that you have to interpret the Constitution so that it's the best Constitution it can be. And that means you have to figure out the principles behind it to make it the best work that it could possibly be. So here, and you know, so examples of that are, is the Constitution better if it is saying that muskets and AK-47s are really the same kind of thing? Um, or is it better if you understand that um, the Second Amendment is about um, the relationship of um, regulation to freedom? Um, you can see which way I'm going, but um, that should be the question. Um, is the First Amendment better if you understand it as only that anyone who wants to is allowed to have their own printing press, which is an argument, that freedom of the press is that people can print pamphlets if they want, or if you see it as the press has to be treated specially, um, and even if the press is leaking government secrets, the press should be protected from prosecution for that, which makes it a better constitution when you interpret the First Amendment. Um, so the dead constitution view, which is Scalia's view, or was Scalia's view, is the dead Scalia view. Um, the dead constitution view is understand exactly what these words meant to the people who framed them and interpret the constitution that way. The Dworkin view, which is the opposite view, is understand what they meant not what each individual word meant, because they could only think about muskets or about certain kinds of printing presses with movable type, but understand instead that the reason they were calling for freedom of the press is they believed in the absolute necessity of the government not stopping people from engaging in free discourse. And that is a better reading, he thinks, of the First Amendment than the um, reading which simply looks at what printing presses at the time were like and who owned them and how pamphlets were distributed. Um, so, so the view that the press has a special place in society. Um, for Dworkin, that's clearly what the writers of the First Amendment um, thought. For Scalia, it's not, although he doesn't actually, that this is unfair to Scalia. For some people, it's not what the words of the First Amendment say. Um, the right to privacy is another example in the Constitution. Um, there is no right to privacy in the Constitution. That is nowhere in the Constitution um, does the word privacy, except with respect to property, nowhere in the Constitution does the word privacy appear. 
Um, however, in the 1960s, various Supreme Court justices found a right to privacy implied by the Constitution. Because how could you make sense of this document unless its framers and unless its amenders were imagining that people had a right to their private lives unregulated by the government? Um, how, what would freedom from unreasonable search and seizure mean unless you had a right to do in private things that wouldn't harm others, possibly things that wouldn't harm yourself. So a right to privacy was found in the Constitution in 1967, I think. Do people know the case, Griswold versus Connecticut? Is that familiar to anyone? What is it? Um, it's the case where they offered right to privacy. Yeah, and it's, um, it was um, a case which allowed birth control to be sold to anyone who wanted it. Um, so Connecticut had a law that to, to buy birth control, you had to be married. Um, unmarried people couldn't have birth control because what do you think they were going to do with it? Um, so for birth control, you had to be married, and um, people sued. And uh, someone named Griswold sued and said, um, no, anyone should be able to purchase birth control. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court ruled for them because they said clearly the Constitution defends people's privacy. And um, even though it never says it does, it makes no sense if it doesn't. Um, Scalia explicitly thought that was a very bad ruling, that if there were a right to privacy, it would be in the Constitution. If it's not in the Constitution, there is no such right. So that view, that theoretical view, reads something as being the best thing it can be. It doesn't mean we know what the best thing something can be is. There'll be then arguments about what the best thing, what the best reading is. What makes this the best thing it can be? To go back to A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, the end of A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, you will recall, it's the, the well, the whole thing is, A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, I Had No Human Fears, She Seemed a Thing That Could Not Feel the Touch of Earthly Years, no motion hath she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees, rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. And there are readers, they tend to be the same readers who think that Lear dies happy, which a lot of you did. Um, there are readers who say it's the best poem it can be if you see the progression, at the very end there's hope. Rocks and stones and trees. So we move back to life. And the very end of the poem is one which is life-affirming. She neither hears nor sees, just like Cordelia. Rolled round in Earth's diurnal course. And that seems awful. She's in the grave. Rolled round in Earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones. <clears throat> and trees, that is, at the very last instant, we return to a world of life, a world of growth, a world of possibility. So that's one reading, and those who support that reading um, think it's the best reading of the poem, because it's a reading that gives you hope at the end. The other possible reading of those last words are rocks and stones and trees, what you have is a kind of pseudo-metaphor, a kind of metaphor through set theory, which is that here is a set of three natural objects, or three natural kinds of objects, rocks, stones, trees. Look at those objects, and in that set, <coughs> most of those things in the set, namely rocks and stones, are inanimate. But look, there are also trees. Those are animate. But even trees belong to the set of inanimate objects. So that reading would be rocks and stones and trees all are objects that are like rocks and stones. You can add trees, but it makes no difference. Even trees are like rocks and stones. She's dead, rolled round by earth with everything else that Earth rolls around. 
and Earth rolls round both the living and the dead. Last line of what story? Anyone know? Last words of what story? Snow endlessly falling, falling endlessly through the universe upon all the living and the dead. Yeah, Jackson? The last line of the dead. The last line of the dead, of a story called the dead that we will read. Not a story called the living and the dead, but a story called the dead. So rocks and stones and trees on that reading, on Joyce's reading, you might almost say, on rocks and stones and trees might be the last words of a poem called rocks. That is, trees are rocks too. Or it might be the last word of a poem called trees. Rocks are trees too. Look at how amazing nature is. So it really depends whether you lump trees with rocks or whether you lump rocks and stones with trees whether you are seeing everything finally is coming to life, even in a poem about death, or whether you see this poem as being about how everything ends up dead, even when the last word is a word which refers to something alive. At the end of the dead, it's the living and the dead, and the last word of the poem is dead. The dead. Um, However, it may be that the implied last word of a slumber did my spirit seal is the grateful dead. No, no. <laughs> um, that is, that even the dead are alive because it ends with trees. Um, so how do you solve that argument? You solve it actually by arguing. And what you're thinking is, someone who thinks this poem ends happily doesn't see what an amazingly powerful, despairing, grim poem it is. And they're missing something. And the other side will think, someone who thinks that this poem ends sadly doesn't see the enormous and amazing work that it does to be able to come back from the terrible things that it's seen and still be life-affirming. Some of you will have heard this from other classes of mine, or at least one other class of mine, but I'll um, tell it to you anyhow. Um, you may know that um, Solomon, King Solomon, um, is credited with several biblical books, with having written several biblical books. Um, and among them are the books Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And do people know this? That uh, Ecclesiastes begins the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And the son of David, king in Jerusalem, is Solomon. Um, and he's the preacher. And Ecclesiastes is the only book in the Bible, here we go again with last words, it's the only book in the, in the Bible that ends with the word evil. Um, if you get a Hebrew Bible, what you will find is there's always a little small print in um, a Bible used for religious purposes that then quotes the second to last verse of Ecclesiastes just so that you don't have a book ending with the word evil. They just repeat as a kind of refrain or chorus the second to last verse of Ecclesiastes. But it's the only biblical book that ends with the word evil. And Ecclesiastes is famous for what very famous title? Ernest Hemingway? For whom the bell is told. No, that's done. Do not sense no for whom the bell tolls, it tells for thee. But good, that's one um, Hemingwayan quotational title. But there's another one. Think of other Hemingway. The sun also rises. The sun also rises, yes. So that's Earth's diurnal course. The sun also rises, or in the King James Version, the sun also ariseth, and the sun also setteth, and hasteneth to the place where he ariseth again, and there is nothing new under the sun. So what Ecclesiastes is basically, its first words once Solomon starts speaking is, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. So all of life is vanity. Nothing is meaningful. There is nothing new under the sun, is another famous line from Ecclesiastes. Don't think that there's any hope in the world. Everything has already happened. Everything is already gone to nothingness. There is nothing new under the sun. Samuel Beckett, who we'll be reading later, begins his great first novel, Murphy. The sun shone, having no alternative, on the nothing new. 
So that's how that novel begins. The sun shone, having no alternative on the nothing new, because there's nothing new under the sun. And then it ends with the word evil. God will put an end to all things, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Um, Solomon is also credited with writing Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon, whence the Toni Morrison title, Song of Solomon. Um, and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, is um, a ridiculously sexy book of the Bible. Um, it's um, full of erotic imagery, um, full of very, very sensual description of physical love, so full of it that um, it had to be reinterpreted as allegorical. Oh, well, when he's talking about kissing and smooching and Frenching and all that, um, what he's really talking about is the church and its members. Um, has nothing to do with physical sex. It just looks like it does. Um, so that's the standard um, theological interpretation. But that's not what it is. It's a song about human sexuality. So the standard view is that Solomon wrote Song of Songs as a young man when he was all full of erotic enthusiasm and exuberance and thought life was great. Um, I will kiss him with the kisses of my mouth. Song of Songs is also spoken by a woman, which is interesting. That is the speaker, not the poet, not the writer, if it is Solomon, um, is a woman. So I will kiss him with the kisses of my mouth and... Um, there are all sorts of moments like that. Um, then he saw what life was like. He grew to be an old man. Um, he had to think about dividing too many babies. Um, and um, like many people, he grew to be pessimistic and sad. And at the end of his life, he wrote Ecclesiastes. So that's a good story. There's another story, which is exactly the opposite that when Solomon was a broody teenager, wearing black and never smiling, and um, going to the coffee houses but not looking up, or the equivalent <laughs> at the time, um, and listening to emo music or goth or whatever, showing my age here, um, he wrote Ecclesiastes. And then he lived life and he saw what life was really like and he saw all the possibilities of life. And as an old man, he was just so full of celebration for life that he wrote Song of Songs. So one question might be, which is the better story? Which would you prefer? That he went from Song of Songs to Ecclesiastes, which in a way shows that you prefer tragedy, or that he went from Ecclesiastes to Song of Songs which is the life-affirming and comic, not comedy ha-ha, but comedy as in life is actually good. So do you prefer the life is good version of the two works of Solomon, or do you prefer the life is crap version of the two works of Solomon? And the answer will have to be which one is a better story for you. Which one do you think is more powerful or deeper or more interesting or whatever? Now, if someone prefers the other one, all you can say to them is something like, can't you see my version is deeper? But it's not. You can't prove your version is deeper. You can only try to convince them that your version is deeper, that it's deeper to see that life becomes tragic, or it's deeper to see the tragedy is actually less deep than happiness. And making those claims, those are aesthetic claims that you're making as a reader, as an interpreter, as a person to whom the story or the works speak. And you are trying to say what it is that they say that's the best thing they can be saying, the deepest thing. So we have these arguments all the time. This is what everyday aesthetic argument looks like. If you go to a movie with someone and you come out of it, we've, again, we've all had this experience. You go to a movie with someone and you come out of it. Um, and you say, 
God, that was amazing. And they say, I thought it was totally pompous. Um, it's rarely the case that in that argument, the person who is arguing that something is pompous is more sympathetic. It may be pompous. There are pompous movies. But if one person gets something deep out of it and the other person dismisses it as pompous, they can only dismiss it as pompous by saying that the person who got something deep out of it didn't really get anything deep out of it. They just want to prove that they're cool. But if you have that kind of argument, if you've been to a movie that you found really moving and the person you've been to finds it pompous, um, that's a real disappointment about that person. You generally don't feel shaken in your views. You feel like they missed an experience they could have had. If you have an argument with your parents about whether, I don't know, Guy Ritchie is a great director or just um, a ridiculous shoot 'em up kind of guy, um, then you know you're right. Because you're going to say Guy Ritchie is a great director, right? Good. Um, you're going to know you're right, that they're missing something. So basically, our everyday experience of reading something as the best thing it can be is saying that people who don't see things are missing something, that you yourself are not missing. As I say, it gets interesting when there's not a debate about whether it's a great poem. Most people agree a slumber did my spirit seal is a great poem. It gets interesting when you feel that someone is missing something if they think that trees is a happy word at the end of the poem, and they feel that you're missing something by thinking trees is just another in a list of sad words along with rocks and stones. It's when you think the other person can't know how great the poem is because they're missing something that you see, and they think that you can't know how great the poem is because you're missing something that they see, then you have a genuine argument. But the basis of that argument is a feeling that your way of reading it makes it powerful. And when we look at great aesthetic works, we should try to find out how we can make them powerful for us. That should always be the first step. How do I look at this and see whether and how it's powerful? And you'll often fail. There's a lot of crap out there. But part of what Wordsworth is doing when he's talking about the natural language of natural men, when he's talking about the idea that poetry is the description of all human experience and all human life and something that all humans um, might be represented by, what Wordsworth is basically saying is look at how a person who says this sort of thing might be describing a powerful experience in the natural language of natural men. Look at how those experiences themselves are powerful, which is why they're producing poetry. So there's a kind of moral demand in Wordsworth about poetry, which is I am trying to get you to expand your sense of who counts as a human to everyone. Because all humans do count as humans, for Wordsworth. Whereas the highly artificial, cultivated, oh, you don't have the taste to, to understand this view of art. Of course you don't understand this, you're uneducated. Um, that view is one which basically says there are some elite human beings who really get what it means to be human, and then there are the masses who don't. Then there's the great unwashed, who don't understand all human capacity, all human possibility. And that argument really is a political argument, an argument between the forces of elitism and the forces of um, general expansion of human suffrage. Um, 
it's most obvious, perhaps, in literature, in just because literature is so much about men and women, in the way women are treated in literature. In literary works which treat women as objects for male interest, and literary works which treat women as real. And perhaps unsurprisingly, um, it's works by women authors who tend to treat women as real more often than works by male authors, as we'll see when we get to Jane here. But it's not only works by women authors. Um, it's more likely works by women authors. So just to get back to King Lear for one second, because we have that last second that we always do, right? Um, the question about King Lear, um, we'll do the intonations of next week. Bring it, read it, bring it the, on Monday. The question about King Lear is, so Gloucester's heart bursts smilingly. If he's parallel to King Lear, Lear sees Cordelia and he thinks her lips are moving. And then he dies. And he, even though we know she's dead, he may not. And if he thinks she's alive, then his last thought would be a happy thought. And maybe he deserves that. And maybe that makes it a better play. That Lear, at the very last instant, has a lightning before death, to quote Romeo. Um, that he has this moment of believing she's alive and saying, good, now I can die. He's wrong, we're sad, but we're glad that he isn't, that he's happy. The other possibility is, no, Gloucester gets to die happily. He's not the real tragic figure in this play. It's Lear who is. So the contrast is what matters, that Gloucester's heart bursts smilingly, and he has his great last line, or his great last description is, and then his heart too weak, the conflict to sustain, to its joy and grief bursts smilingly, whereas Lear's last words are, pray you undo this button, in one version of the play, at any rate. Pray you undo this button, which is not the words of triumphant happiness despite death. So which makes it a better play? Um, in the papers that I read, you guys clearly thought, who wrote about this topic, thought it was a better play if Lear dies happy, and you made good arguments for it. Um, and you weren't making it in those terms, but I think that's what you were thinking. Make arguments in terms of what makes something better. And read Wordsworth in the best way you can read him. Read this poem so that it's the best poem you've ever read. It's probably not the best poem you've ever read, but it should be the plurality. The best poem that the plurality of people Okay, have a good weekend. Pick up your papers if you're here and don't have them yet. Hand in your papers if you haven't yet. Pumpkins are coming. Just like winter. I hope winter's not coming again. Sorry? I hope winter's not coming. No, I'm just, it's a Game of Thrones rough. Do I have yours? Yes, sorry. Thank <laughs> you.